The following podcast is presented by Together Washington. Together Washington, we are seeking to build bridges across divides and tell the inspiring stories of those building the common good. If you'd like to support or get involved with Together Washington, go to togetherwashington.com. We've got Katara Johnson with us today. I had the real pleasure of meeting Katara yesterday. I was in Spokane meeting with some Spokane leaders with Together Washington. And I was just so inspired by Katara and just the the wisdom that she was throwing out. And I just said, Katara, I got to have you on the show because I just know our listeners are going to be inspired and encouraged by you. And so I'm so glad to have Katara. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. A lot of fun. A lot of fun. I, I said earlier, you know, you grew up on the south side of Chicago and now you are a skillful leader in Spokane, focused on sharing your story to inspire others. You're the chief diversity officer at Excelsior, which is a holistic treatment and recovery center, creating space for employees to come together and, and be encouraged and find hope in their life. And so maybe we could just start off by just sharing a little bit of your background and how you got to Spokane and became the 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 leader that you are today tell us what what was what were those steps that got you to Spokane well I'd like to say my I, I, there was a great lead-in because I like to call them stepping stones to success those are all of my I won't say mistakes there but they were definitely those those stepping stones to success but I grew up in the south side of Chicago my mom she had 13 kids Kanish Katar, Lashana Jamie, Elizabeth, Crystal James, Naomi, Stephen, Daniel, Tisha, Timothy, and Joseph. If she could have beat to that, she would have had a rap song. Boom, boom. And I can I can beatbox a little bit. For dinner. <laughs> and so so growing up on the south side of Chicago, they were just we my mom didn't have a lot of money. My stepfather was was uh, illiterate, but he worked a job at um uh as a security guard, so we didn't have a lot of money. And so the projects were right down the street. And so we had this level of violence that was going on outside. But my mother, she, she, uh, she shielded us. She created a space for us in the house and, and encouraged us to have faith because she's a woman of faith. And believe me, you needed it in Chicago on the south side. It is a, it's the reason why they call it Chirac because of how much, how, how many uh, homicides happen a year and how many people die on a regular basis. And, she told me that there's, you know, there's three types of people in the world, those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and those who wonder what happened. And she would all ask, what type of person would we be? And living on the south side of Chicago, when there are coagulated pools of blood just on the ground because on the way to school, that's not an environment that is conducive to learning. And my mother, she would literally... Um, pray over us in the morning in the hopes that we would make it to school. And you could see it in her eyes, but she would send us anyway. And she said, education is the one thing that no one can ever take away from you. And so we took that to heart and we, we made sure that we got our education. And, and it was time to go to high school. And uh, a lot of my friends had had babies and they were already done after eighth grade. And so here we were going to high school. I wanted to go to uh, this private high school, but the scholarship didn't cover um, it didn't cover transportation uh, on the bus, city bus, so we couldn't get there every day. 
And then, you know, my mom was like, you know, well, you're going to go to Inglewood High School. And we went there, and out of 620 freshmen that started out, only 114 graduated. And it was not easy because here I am going to school. I've got this mom that is really strict. She's going to church. She's a woman of faith. And the other, a lot of the other kids, I mean, they're into Jordans, they're in gangs. And you, there would actually be large gang fights after school where people would use the club. Um, I'm dating myself with the club uh, that would uh, put in your steering wheel to keep your car from being stolen. And you, people would swing those and it was gang fights. And I was chased home every single day. And finally, I took the worst advice ever. If you can't beat them, join them. And so I was chased home every day until I joined. And I joined, and it, I knew that wasn't what my mom, you know, had planned for me. And it's not even what I planned for myself. But in order to go to school, you just had to – it was either that or you need to have big brothers or fathers. And a lot of those fathers were not present in the inner city for various reasons. And so it was like fathers were like the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. It's like, you know, you hear about them, but do you see them? So people and teachers would say, be a man. And it's like, you know, you have a lot of young men, like, you know, what does that look like? Hmm. Not saying that there were no fathers in, 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 in the hood. There, there, there are. There's good fathers out there. And but everyone, it's 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 been it was kind of few and far between, and because of all types of circumstances, and so going through that by my sophomore year, I end up leaving home, running away, and trying to figure it out. My mom was stressed out having thirteen kids, and so the street was not uh, very uh, kind. Let's just say within a short six months, my hands were beaten with a bat by male street gang members. Um, I was trying to go to school and convince gang members to go to school on a regular basis. And right after that, I ended up being stabbed with my artery severed and my hand was broken with a bat by male street gang members. So it was just so much violence. And and then by age 16, I am, uh, so I was, uh, ended up becoming pregnant from uh, what we call the Me Too movement now from a violent situation also on the south side of Chicago. So there was a lot of trauma mm. in that space. And my yeah. teachers, they were like, you know, Katara, you can be anything you want to be. And I'm looking at my environment like, what? Mm. <laughs> How can you believe this? Because I don't see it. And I remember my teacher saying, Katara, you're, 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 you're ambidextrous. And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm Katara. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> And I didn't know, I was like, you know, and so the more I learned and she, she challenged me and I believed her because she spoke with such confidence and similar confidence that my mom had that I could be anything I wanted to be. So I started uh, going to school and even though I was in a gang and try to convince gang members to go to school too, and it worked for a while. And I didn't graduate in the honors division, but I graduated right under the honors division. Um, and it was a challenge because having a new baby, uh, being in a gang, living on the street, this double life. I was also in junior engineers training, college preparatory math program. Oh, wow. The band. Oh, my and goodness. Club. What did you play in the band? A trumpet. Oh, my. Katara, I knew I liked you so much. I played the trumpet. <laughs> we should do a little trumpet duet or something. Oh my! I don't know if I'll be so rusty, but uh, I was holding my cheeks so tight, uh, and I was one of the only females there in that. And uh, and I made second chair. I was so proud of myself. 
Um, and, and but this was so I was living like this double life in a gang and, you know, selling drugs three to three in the morning, trying to take care of my son. And and, and I'm grateful and blessed that one of the, the this guy, he was called the, the, the kingpin of the north of the, uh, of the northwest. I had no idea. He just was a guy who had a lot of money and uh, an Italian uh, girlfriend, which was rare in our in our neighborhood. And he would give me like a hundred dollars to make a drink for him. And so I would do that. And one day he came, he said, I won't give anybody uh, any drugs or sell to anybody who gives money to uh, give drugs to her. So he looked out for me. He said, just from having a conversation, he said, you're too smart to be out here. I don't want you to die out here. And I'm like, what is going on? And it was like, people were saying things to me in my community and, and they believed in me. And then uh, when I was struggling um, with my pregnancy and had no food, uh, there was a guy who was on a fruit truck, and he would I would help him sell this fruit in order to get fresh fruit. And I was just hungry because I was, you know, living on the street for a while back and forth, you know, trying to make a, a, a better life. And the gang members didn't like that. Um, I would uh, try to inspire young women not to be, uh, victims of human trafficking, and so that's when they broke my hand with the bat. Um, three times they beat it with the bat for love, life, and loyalty for me to remember to keep my mouth shut. Mm. And so this wow. type of violence happening on a regular basis. And I wanted, so I went to college, and it was this uh, opportunity. I never went out really outside of the neighborhood, um, and so there was a trip at the at the high school. And they wanted to take inner city youth to a very homogenous uh, 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 college in Clinton, Iowa. And I was like, it was Mount St. Clair College. I think it's called Ashton College now. But they would bring us up there, these 10 students from Inglewood. And I ended up only going at first because I just wanted a free trip to leave the hood. And when I got there, there was grass with no hypodermic needles. There was you know, uh, uh, people walking in the street and no one was ducking and there was no coagulated pools of blood. And I was like, I want my son to have this. Mm. This is what I want him to have. And I didn't know exactly how to get it because I was very, very, very rough around the edges. (laughs) Mm. I would say the edges and the center. And I, I learned to be an effective communicator. And I remember, uh, coming inside of a, a meeting and I was so mean to everybody because the world had been so mean to me. And the more I walked through these neighbor, this uh, neighborhood around the college, I began to see this separation between how these inner city black people live versus all of these, these white students at this college until I met a young man named Ryan Morris. And he and I became room, uh, a good friends studying in math. And I was helping him, and he was like, uh, I'm going to the bathroom. Don't take anything. And I'm like, what? Oh, no, he didn't. Hmm. <laughs> and so um, he came out, and I said, why are you talking like this? And he was like, because um, I really you know, I really want to talk to you, and I want you to understand. And I'm like, what do, you, what do you mean by that? Tell me more about what you mean by that. And I'm like, white people are weird. They're so loud. He talked really loud and slow, even though this was one encounter. And so he tells me, he says, you know, 
because I'm, I'm such a direct communicator. I said, tell me what you mean. Help me understand. You want me to understand. Help me understand. Now, I could have got really upset, but I really wanted to understand him. And so he told me, he ended up apologizing. He asked me to leave. And I was like, that's weird. So I go to my room. He comes back the next day and he tells me that he had never really had any in, in close encounters with any black person. And he went on to tell me that his parents told him that black people were slow to learn. And he really wanted to be my friend and he really wanted to, me to understand what he was saying. And I was like, really? And I said, I was like, wow. And he was like, the only black people he really watched was the Cosby show and he really didn't watch it. And I respected his honesty. And I was like, wow. I said, well, even if I was slow to learn, I wasn't, you know, I didn't have any problems hearing. Why were you so loud? And we just both laughed. And <laughs> and so we started talking and we start talking about black and white issues. And so one day he says, Katara, why is everything a black and white issue with you? And so I looked at him and I said, because everything is a black and white issue. And he was like, what do you mean everything's a black and white issue? And so I started telling him about, you know, how it, hard it was growing up poor on the south side of Chicago, about the gangs, about the violence. And he said, Tatara, let me tell you something. I, how much did you get for financial aid? And I told him, he said, I got $900. And this is how much my mom made. And I saved my money from cutting grass all this time to get this car. And I'm just like, whoa. Everything that I thought he was given was not given to him. And it really helped me look at, you know, poverty is universal. Hmm. Now, this, 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 this concentrated poverty and, and, and violence inside of inner cities, now that is, you know, I, we didn't really break that down at the time because I was just getting started in, in, in college. And, and so we had really interesting conversations when he was like, you know, um, I said, black people don't have money to do this, and this, that, this is more money I, uh, than I've seen in my life. And I had to sign it over to the college, and they don't care nothing about black people. And so I remember the sister Angon came out, and she said, Katara, you got to stop fighting with everybody. I said, I'm not fighting with anybody. I'm keeping it real. And she said, um, she said, well, Katara, keeping it real how? And I said, I'm so sorry that my dad didn't buy me a new car, and I'm sorry that I didn't have a new Ivy League school, and I'm sorry that and she said, what is that? I said, that's my professional voice. Every person, every black person has it. They're both fake. No, I said, my fake voice. That's my fake voice. I, I said, that's how we get jobs. And she said, and now we have a new term called code switching is what it's called. And so she told me, she said, Katara, that is not your fake voice. That's your professional voice. Hmm. And I'm looking at her and I've got my eyebrow up and I'm like, what do you mean? And she said, Katara, there are a lot of Katars in the world. And she said, you are going to be placed at some tables and you have an opportunity. I said, you don't think I'm a, I know I'm a token? And she said, Katara, okay, let's say you're a token. Okay. And she said, I want you to take this token experience and I want you to use that voice. And I want you to tell the story of every Katara. Mm, wow. And I want you to be an effective communicator. If that's the sound they need to hear Katara's story, let that be the sound that they hear that story in. And I realized at that moment, she said, let the world become your stage. It's like popcorn. Turn it on, turn it off. And I started doing that. Now mm. people say, well, you are assimilating. You're not keeping it real. And but what I realized that I was at this moment, I was a, 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 
a connector to an experience that most people don't have. Mm. And we'll never know the story of people and why they join gangs and how these kids are chosen, almost like child soldiers in the inner cities of America, Mm. forced to join gangs because of circumstances, corrupt police officers that my mom's first encounter with the police, she was raped by a police officer. So it's, and I saw police officers taking money from drug dealers. So I've seen both sides of it. And to come into a place now where I've worked with law enforcement officers and I was able to see that there are good people in every place. We are with Katara Johnson. Yesterday, I had the great pleasure of being in Spokane with some amazing Spokane leaders, and Katara is most certainly one of those. She is the Chief Human Resources Officer at Excelsior and is right in the mix of bringing together people in Spokane in a powerful ways. And Katara, we are talking, you know, what your steps that you were taking and how you got to Spokane. And let's just pick that up because we're... Uh, this is just powerful stuff. I love hearing your story and how you were brought to Spokane. Yeah, thank you. And yes, it was just this this transition of going through so much trauma and trying to figure out how to survive. And so in college, uh, building this relationship with this, uh, here is my first real white friend. And this white man is telling me, how he struggled uh, with poverty and that. And that's when I realized that I needed to start taking people's experiences as individuals and not as the collective. And so I listened to his story and we connected and ended up becoming really good friends. And he challenged me in some areas. He was like, what are you wearing? I was like, oh, this triple five soul. He said, you say you didn't have any money for college. How much is that outfit? I said, you know, so I told him, you know, you know, this was 185 bucks. And he said, well, the food to which uh, the food uh, to pay for your meals for this uh, semester is like 238 or 283 uh, is your copay. And I was like, and I never saw money in that way. And then he was like, well, what about your shoes? Now, he didn't know that my community, because uh, out of 620 freshmen, only 114 graduate graduated. And then to go to college, um, the community came together, especially being a, a gang leader. To say that I'm changed, I'm, I'm leaving, and to go to college. So the community came together. They got me clothes and they got me shoes because I was supposed to look good in college. I was going to look good in college, but nobody talked about the books. Is because a lot of the people in my neighborhood never went to college, hmm. so they didn't know what to do. So they got what they what they 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 knew. So we were going to look good, and so it is. It's so interesting culturally. So I was looking good, but I was missing some things. You know, while I was at school. And it brought this bitterness and maybe as I looked at other people, but we built a relationship. And so I noticed that there was this invisible segregation line between black students and white students in the uh, in the dorms. And so the black students would be watching um, uh, jukebox is what they call it in Chicago. It's kind of like MTV, but, you know, you watch the uh, videos and all of the white students would be playing ping pong. And so it was just so odd. So one day I just walked up. I said, I'll teach you how to dance if you teach me how to play ping pong. And I remember this guy looked at me, he was like, what? I can dance? And he just started breaking it down, and I just laughed. <laughs> and so and it, that was the day that we all just kind of crossed over and started hanging out. And 
some people were afraid that was also from Inglewood, uh, uh, the school that I went to. And so, but we slowly made it in. And um, and so we, I, I started this trend of getting, you know, hanging out with people that didn't grow up in the inner city. And I would tell them my story and I would hear about their experiences. And so, and then, you know, start sharing that with the professors. And so I uh, kind of got in with the wrong crowd for a little bit and, and I might've been part of it. Hmm. <laughs> and so I ended up, uh, having to make a choice like was I going to stay at school or was I going to get out and my mom I remember being at a party and 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 coming home for break and my mom uh uh she she said Katara you have a kid what do you want to do and I said well she said you're not tough enough to join the army I was like what of course I am she tricked me and so now my my stepfather was in the army and I recently found out my biological father was in the army as well. Um, but I, I ended up uh, joining the army. I tested to be a nuclear chemical and biological specialist. And I joined, and this was after a night of complete drinking and partying. And I made it somehow to the testing center and did well. And I joined the army and I was in the army for five and a half years where I, I was able to travel the world, to be in Germany, to be at Fort in Fort Hood in Texas, to be at Fort Stewart, Georgia, to be put inside of spaces with roommates from all around the world, and to hear their stories, and to to um, to take this this street tough and add it to military, you know, um, uh, leadership. I end up becoming a non-commissioned officer in two and a half years, and it normally takes about five uh, to do that. Wow. And so um, I, I loved it. It was discipline. I, I learned to not, I couldn't use any excuse. It was like accomplish the mission. The mission was first. And so it really challenged the way, that's when I started meeting biracial, multi-ethnic uh, people. And so I remember talking to uh, young men and young women who, who, who were multi-ethnic and they didn't really fit in being black or white or in Japanese and black or whatever it was with their uh, ethnic makeup, and they would share with me how they didn't feel like they connected with either race, like they were just in the middle. Hmm. And they would receive uh, discrimination and racial discrimination from uh, people in that, they, that looked like them and from uh, white soldiers. And I was just like, wow, I don't want to have be in a biracial relationship and put my kids through that. That's exactly what, uh, <laughs> hmm. and uh, my kids are biracial. However, um, this, that has also uh, touched my, uh, had an influence on these cultural experiences and these multi, multicultural experiences, which allowed me to really get to know people in thinking. And so by the time I served five and a half years in the Army and I, I got married and doing things that I said I'd never do, I said I'd never, because I grew up in the city, I watched Roots, I was like, absolutely not. All of my teachers were black with the exception of two. Everyone in my neighborhood was black. All the people who worked in my neighborhood was black. So to, and I'm in Chicago where there's, where there's a lot of black Panthers. So there's this strength and pride. So I was like, I'll never do that. And it's so funny. Love has a funny way of not erasing all your plans. And so and it, and love has no color. Mm. So I end up moving to Washington State, his home of record, in Davenport, Washington. So, um, and I didn't know at the time what it meant. He was like, 
well, I want you to come to uh, my home because uh, um, the, the racial demographics aren't the same. And I was like, demographics? I was like, boy, I survived the inner city. I can live anywhere. So I get to Davenport, Washington, and the African-American population is myself and one other woman that I never really saw, but twice probably in my time there. And so that was an extreme culture shock. And so I had to find ways to connect. And in that time, I was still more of of fighting. You know, why is this happening? When when my son experienced uh, uh, discrimination, I wanted to fight. It was not so much as like, why is this happening? Because I couldn't reconcile it. I served my country for five and a half years overseas, and I come to America. My son was in Germany and was treated well, and I come to America, and I have this this uh, discrimination. And so I pull this whole complaint. It takes all of my energy. And then I'm like, you know what? I have to stop. Then I go to college and I'm going to school hundred miles a day. And I'm now at the air force base going to school and going to school in Spokane. And that's when I really got involved with uh, students and student government and uh, meeting native Americans uh, truly for the first time. And so here's this visibility of tribal and sovereign nations and, 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 and indigenous people in real life. I, I didn't, you know, I, it wasn't that uh, Washington has a lot of tribes. I didn't see that a lot in, in Chicago, if that makes sense. So this was a new element of divert, racial and ethnic diversity that I wasn't used to. But it was, it was amazing getting to know uh, my friends, uh, my, my indigenous brothers and sisters, and so it really, then I started to go and uh, start doing speaking. And I spoke at a couple of tribal events for youth sharing my story. And I did that for 45,000 high school and middle school students across the state of Washington in a three-year span. And that didn't include uh, uh, nonprofits and, and businesses and higher education uh, schools, the K-12 system and, and higher ed. And so what I found out, was when the Native American um, uh, uh, tribal leaders, when I was at the Kalispell tribe on the opening of this event, I was speaking, and this woman came out with this beautiful voice that reminded me of gospel. And she sang after a domestic violence talk to, uh, using her cultural song to, she said the song was, was used to carry away heaviness. And, 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 and to carry away spirits, uh, heavy spirits. And I said, that sounds, God, I know that sound. That is the sound of it, that we sound, that sound in gospel when I was at church and my mom would make when, when there was groanings. And I'm like, there's some, there was a spiritual connection to that sound. And so I, we often focus on our, our differences, but there are some similarities in, in our, in, in the things that we do. I realized I needed to start focusing more on commonalities than I did the difference, uh, uh, the, the areas that we were different, not to diminish, you know, what makes us different, but looking at that common ground and those common commonalities that we have and being able to truly connect with people. Hmm. And so I realized that I ended up becoming like a bridge, yeah. a bridge for others and an advocate. And before I knew it, I ended up being pushed in this place where I had to deal with behavioral health and learn things. And now I understand thinking. And, and, and when you look at psychology, what we see today is a lot of disconnect because we focus so much on diversity that we're not focusing on 
not just inclusivity, but focusing on reading, meeting at common ground, if that makes sense. Yeah. How do we work together for the solution? And, and oftentimes organizations will focus so much on the problem of racism and, and institutional barriers. But I started to look at data and numbers, and I'm looking at, like, what is the common core here? I see there is, you know, the racial disparities with uh, African Americans and Native Americans and our Latino Latinx communities. And so I'm seeing these disparities, and they look the same in every, if you had transparency and laid them on top of each other, they look the same. And so I was like, and then I looked closer, and I noticed that those Washingtonians living in rural areas, had similar disparities. And so I'm like, wait a minute, what is this? It is this common core of limited access. And so as I started to dive deeper and looking at the social determinants of health, that's common for all people. Yeah. When you have access to fresh, healthy foods and vegetables, when you have access to a quality health care and have a, some type of uh, health insurance, when you have access to quality education, when you have access to uh, transportation that to get, can get you to and from the places that you need to go. We have the pleasure of having Katara Johnson with us today. She is a leader in Spokane. She is the chief human resources officer at Excelsior and has been doing some incredible work in our second largest city here in Washington. And Katara, one of the things when we were talking yesterday that I was just, oh my goodness, I I was really just enthralled with the wisdom you were sharing around just the issue of identity and fear. And at the top of the program, I was talking a little bit about fear and, and how much fear can rule us or people try to, you know, governmental leaders try to use fear to control us and things like that. And you had just some, you, you've been learning a lot and, and been teaching a lot on this idea of identity and fear. Can you, can you share with the listeners about that? Absolutely. So, you know, it, Social identity theory uh, and here social psychology and 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 Dr. Henry Tafel uh, uh, came up with this model of uh, social identity uh, theory uh, stages and so there's three there's uh, social um, identify first social categorization and then it's social identification and then social comparison and every person you know has this and so that first uh, category is when people categorize objects in order to understand them and identify them. It's a uh, similar way we categorize, you know, ourselves in order to understand the environment. So we'll, um, we'll, we'll, we'll categorize uh, people. So then you have social identification and that's the second stage where you, you adopt the identity of the group you've categorized yourself in, as belonging to. So um, I, I consider myself black. So I've connected with black people. I consider myself a veteran, so I uh, identify as a vet. I know what vets look like. I know how we talk, so I, I, I also identify as, as a vet. And so I can have all of these identity, social identities. Some people may also, I also identify, you know, as a mother. And so I, I join that, that group as well. And so depending on the situation, that, that um, identity is more salient, right? And so uh, depending on where I am, uh, so you can have numerous uh, 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 chosen identities. 
and that's and your social identification, but that's your social identity. And then that last uh, uh, phase is social comparison. It's when, you know, we, we categorize ourselves as a part of a particular group and we've identified with that group. And then we tend to compare ourselves, uh, this group, with other groups. And our self-esteem becomes wrapped into that, into that social comparison group that we've identified with. And so then it's like my group is right and that group is wrong. We see it in politics all the time. And, and this is critical in understanding prejudice uh, because once a group comes in and I identify themselves as rivals, uh, they're forced to compete with, you know, with each other to maintain their self-esteem. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, uh, Absolutely. To, to be right. So what happens is a person has your core identity. That's who you are, separate from your social identity. Some people, you know, identify LBGTQ, um, IA, uh, uh, LBGTQ+. Uh, plus. Some people identify as black. And I noticed something when I did a, uh, a training with uh, uh, Jamie Winsworth. And so he, he helped me come to, by a series of questions and going honestly from the fear of trauma, going down. And then he said, he asked me, you know, um, if I was like to reintroduce myself or my creator was to reintroduce me today, absent from the one thing that I'm most afraid of, which was not being good enough. He was like, what would, what would I be called? And it took me a moment. And I'm like, wait a minute, no one has ever asked that question. Hmm. Who am I outside of my job? So I'm not my, the work that I do. Who am I truly? If I don't identify with my race or I don't, I, you know, if, if outside of my race and all these other things that are veterans and all that, who am I really? And so I, I took a moment and, and I heard chosen daughter but because of my faith. I'm a chosen daughter of God. And so when I took that identity, whenever my, because I used to identify as black first. And when I identified as black first, which is my social identification, anything that happened to black people, it was like it happened to me, like in my home. And I was, I was angry about it. And I, I'm, I'm telling you, I couldn't even think straight. And even when, uh, uh, when, when um, Trayvon Martin, I couldn't even go outside to even look at people. I was so overwhelmed with anger and grief and sadness and, and because my core identity was all in being black. And so when I was in meetings and I would have conversations with people and, and, and we have people in, in Spokane and you have the majority of, of, of uh, white people in Spokane and, and we would be at a community meeting and so cut me off. My identity as a black woman, a black a person and as a woman was threatened. So that's the identity threat. And so what happens when you have identity threat, you get fight, flight, freeze, appease, or disassociate. So how do we respond in those situations when our identity is threatened, when our core, when we use our social identity as our core? So once I found out my core identity, now my social identities are all important. They're important because they're also part of me. However, now when my identity is threatened, I can respond instead of react because I know who I am at my core. And now I can say, and I can ask questions, tell me more, uh, you know, of what you meant when you said this. And now I've, I've noticed that when you do that, when you communicate in that way, you can truly get to the root cause of what a person's true intent was. And because people have gone through so much trauma, Sometimes because of the racism, gender, uh, being a woman, being, you know, an older, uh, older male, uh, being overweight, whatever it is, 
that people have had trauma for, their lens is become skewed with a cognitive distortion. And sometimes you can see things that are there that aren't. And so when we, we have conversations, people are afraid of failing, afraid of their identity, you know, being when their identity is threatened, you get this fight, flight, freeze, appease or disassociate. And what does that disassociation look like? For example, there's a room full, I'm a woman, and so there's a room that is predominantly filled with men. And so I'm sitting at the table and I start to say something and the men uh, cut me off or what we call mansplaining. And I, or they say uh, maybe a joke that was inappropriate. And I would say something like, uh, they say, oh, let, let's, I'm so sorry. I don't want to offend you, Katara. And I'll say something like, oh, no, it's not a big deal. I have seven brothers. It's not a thing. I grew up tough and I'm, you see how I just appease mm. the situation. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I hold on to that. And it happens all the time. And so then people, uh, you, you'll find individuals and employees and in, organizations when it's hard to find common ground because there's so much fear and there's these, these trauma lenses that they are coming, that they're communicating with. And so instead of going directly to another employee, what do, what do people typically do? They go to other coworkers and they start having these conversations. And now the person who might have said a microaggression or might have done something that was offensive is completely unaware right, of right. whatever it is that they said or that they've done. And so now you have potentially the other person has defamed that person throughout the organization. And there hasn't really been a conversation. And so now this person is not working with this person. They try to figure out a way to work around each other, which causes all types of disruption in teams. And so oftentimes it'll end up in the HR office. And the question becomes, most organizations don't have a conflict resolution strategy if they go straight to dispute resolution. And then now that we have five generations in the workplace and we have such a complex even uh, 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 communication system where words are not universal. And now we're using even more, even fewer words because we have been told that if you say the wrong word, you will get in trouble. And so there's not been really enough time to have reconciliation. So people say, well, I just forgave them and I just moved on. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. We are trying to build relationships to, 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 to whatever it is the goal of your organization to greet this common ground to serve the community. But the community is also amongst the coworkers. So how do we address this? when we can only go to HR and do a dispute resolution. We have to come back and give people the opportunity to to make a mistake because we're human and Mm. it's going to happen. And then when we put ourselves with with empathy in all areas and treat every employee as a protected class, we'll look at things with a broader spectrum. And so how does this look? I cannot, if, if you use a microaggression, Tim, I can't, sum up your entire life into the one statement that you made and call you a racist. That is an attribution bias. It's an error in thinking because I'm using this one situation and contributing into and, and saying that is the character and the essence of your being. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Wow. And so, Yes. And what you see in the workplace is you see a lot of white employees whose identity is being threatened because at the core of who they are, People are telling them that you're a racist. 
And they're like, wait a minute, you're not looking at anything else in my life but a, unco- a microaggression that came from what you call an unconscious bias. And unconscious bias is unconscious because what? It's unconscious. So can we assume positive intent? And we question ourselves, so where do we learn these, the right words? Where do we learn the right words? Well, teaching the right words is not building relationships. I can only know what is true. And people say, well, they, people need to learn and educate themselves. Where? Online. Well, what about the technical divide? What about the words that we're using in what I call the woke dictionary that are not available and, and used for those who have English as a second language? All the words that we use are not translatable. And then what about those who have low literacy levels? to be able to read and understand. So if we, we can't be exclusive by trying to be inclusive. Mm. So looking, looking at every person as a protective class and coming together for the common good, to have a conversation. So we know that there is racism. We know that systems are in place where it has disparities for, for these, these uh, particular groups of individuals. But the truth is it's access that, that people don't have uh, limited access to the things that create those social determinants of health that create healthy communities. And so if there's limited access, we're going to, it's going to take every person of every ethnicity and every person at the table to truly sit down, to come up with real solutions, but we can't get past diversity. Tara and I just really connected around this concept of, of building bridges, finding that common ground as Katara has been talking about. And one of the things you mentioned, you know, here right before the break around diversity, and you mentioned something to me yesterday that I had actually, I had never heard in the, in the sense of how you phrased it. And it was just really fascinating. If you could kind of, kind of explain this more, but you talked about the need for cognitive diversity and we don't see cognitive diversity. Can you explain that? Cause that was super interesting. Yes. Uh, when we talk about diversity and looking at it in its broadest sense, for the first time we have five generations in the workplace, five. And so when you think about that and, and, and you, you have, I call it thinking about thinking <laughs> and so, or thinking about thought. And so when we have five generations in the workplace, what studies have shown, research has shown that the uh, generation Y sees diversity in a very broad sense to include cognitive diversity and the ability to have uh, that diversity of thought, being able to have these uh, these conversations that may, you know, even, you know, if, when they differ to just to have these, these open uh, debates and seeing conflict is, is, is not a bad thing. And so what all of the, the generation study has shown that generations prior to generation Y tend, typically sees diversity as representation. And so there is, it's, it's often a little bit of a disconnect um, when we, we bring all these generations together when people are looking for representation. And it's like, wait a minute, what, else, what about diversity of thought? And we have left that component out. We, the best, when you bring a diversity, uh, research shows that when you increase diversity, you also increase conflict. So organizations, it is, it's, it's best, a best practice to bring in uh, more supportive training around intercultural communication and communication strategies. 
And when you you when people do trainings about microaggressions and things and responding to microaggressions, that's really addressing conflict. That's a part of a conflict resolution strategy, as we have so many cultures and different uh, uh, diverse lenses of seeing and hearing information. And so with that being said, the cognitive diversity also has to be at the table or you get groupthink. And that's how organizations uh, typically fail and lack in innovation because you don't, you have to, there has to be some type of, uh, of, of, of questioning and, 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 and that occurs in order to get to innovative practices. And that's why I like bringing about interdisciplinary teams that because good ideas can come from any place. And in and, and our organization, we don't use titles when we come to meet. Like, I am the chief human resource officer. That really is not a thing in our meetings because we reduce identity threat when we do that. So if a person comes in with at a, at a meeting and they have a good idea, that is not shot down because of their title, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It is creating a level playing field when it comes to ideas and, and the true essence of being heard and so and being included. And so... Although a lot of organizations will focus more on diversity, I like focusing on inclusion. How do we build community How do in a workplace? How do we create a space where everyone feels like they belong and can bring their authentic self to work without assimilate, assimilating to, to any other culture, like authentically bring themselves uh, to work? And you have to be able to be able to express different ideas. But in today's society, we typically shut down or cancel each other when we don't agree. And then we start labeling us versus them. Well, they're wrong, and, and I'm right, and I'm right, and they're wrong. But the truth is, everybody is right in their own eyes. Hmm. And so if we focus on those areas that we have in common, I think we can get to a place where we can have authentic conversations and and Tim this is why we connected so well because this is what you do this is the essence of who you are as a person how do we come together for the common good you lead in that way and and, and that's the way I lead it's like how do we bring uh, each other together people I have had people challenge me for having friends that thought differently than I do that were politically different than I am. And for a person who served my country in a 90% service-connected disabled veteran, so because I have a disability uh, as well, as a 90% service-connected disabled veteran, I serve my country for the freedom to be friends with whomever I choose. And because we disagree, it doesn't make you my enemy. Yeah. And we have learned not to communicate about things to the, uh, what, what is it, religion, politics, and... Um, what was it? Religion, politics. What's the other, the, the third uh, pillar that you're not supposed to talk about? Um, sports. <laughs> <laughs> because it will, it will cause this yeah. conflict. <laughs> and, and, and we've been, in, and we refuse to talk about these things that will cause conflict to the point now that we don't know how to have a conversation where we 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 have a difference. Yeah. And we we consider each other the, the, the enemy. And so when either person wins, the relationship loses. Yeah. And so we have to live in a community together as long as we're living. So why burn a bridge? And the question so, is, yeah. and here's the thing that I ask, and I'm curious your answer, you know, and because I, I say, you know, one of the biggest lies that we believe, you know, in society is that we can't hold on to your your particular conviction or value 
and still be in friendship, relationship, and even working, building relationship with someone who is different than you, thinks different, is on a different side. We we believe the lie that that's not possible. And then so, therefore, we actually lose out on the the beauty of humanity when we're able to be in relationship with people who are different, who look different, who think different. They're, it's okay. You can actually hold on to your, your convictions and still be in relationship. Why do you think we can't, why do you think we believe that lie that we can't hold on to my convictions or values and still be in relationship with someone who's, who thinks differently? I do believe again, it comes back down to fear. I believe that a lot of people have a lens of trauma and they're seeing things from a trauma lens. If, if they don't agree with me, that means they reject me, they reject my lifestyle, and they don't see me as human, and they this and, and, and what ends up happening is that now the person is stereotyping. The person is prejudiced, is being prejudiced about this person making assumptions that are not true. And if you look this up, research calls this cognitive distortions. Cognitive distortions keep us, it's that thinking, thinking that tells us, and we have to learn how to reframe that thought. This person is the enemy instead of this person disagrees with me because of their personal beliefs. I believe this way. They're not the enemy. It's just a difference. It's not right or wrong. It's different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and so it, it, again, it's that fear. It's that the trauma lens on both sides. I, then someone tells me that I'm wrong. Well, if I'm wrong, that would mean that everything my parents taught me was wrong. Mm. And my parents aren't wrong. <laughs> my grandparents aren't wrong. Yeah. You, are you getting what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah. People are taking, taking one situation and expanding it out and not looking at the possibilities of what could be because they can't, can't get past the one thing that they, uh, they differ on. Yeah. And so when people find their core identity, when people walk in their core identity and can learn how to switch it and say, okay, I'm going to assume positive intent of this person. I am going to assume positive intent. This is who I am. I am this person, and I'm not losing who I am, but I can I can come to my core identity and address this person and respond and not react. Yeah. But I hey. think the other thing is, is a, lot, we are, a lot of us are emotionally illiterate, Tim. We can't, you ask the average person to name, give them 30 seconds, regardless of age, and ask them to write as many feelings down as possible. And I'm telling you, I've done this in the military. I've done this in the healthcare. I've done it uh, with, with uh, municipal government leaders. You will get happy, sad, mad, angry, glad. Katara, as we close our time here, I love to ask our guests uh, this this final question, and here it is. Katara, how do, how do you want to be remembered? I want to be remembered as a bridge builder. Love it. And a courageous advocate for love. Yeah. Ooh, a courageous advocate for love. I like that. Katar Johnson, she is a leader in our amazing city of Spokane. She is the Chief Human Resources Officer. Katar, this has been a lot of fun to have you on the program. Thanks for thanks for coming on. 
Likewise, thanks for having me, and and I am grateful to be here and appreciative of what you do and what you stand for, Tim. Yeah, well, I absolutely look forward to seeing you again and working together with you side by side. And uh, I, I think uh, I think we have some good some good days ahead. The best is yet to come. Yes, yes, it is. Katara Johnson, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Yes, you too.